0: On Thursday, the 1st of July, 2010, the blue doors of His Majesty's Prison Durham opened wide to reveal the outline of an imposing figure. At 6 feet 3 inches tall and weighing about 240 pounds, 37-year-old Raoul Mote was an intimidating figure who was prone to random, aggressive outbursts. He had just finished serving half of an 18-week prison sentence for assaulting a 9-year-old relative. Mote may have served his time behind bars and therefore had to be released, but the prison authorities were less than convinced that it was safe to let him back into the community. On Friday, the 2nd of July, they emailed Northumbria police informing them that Moat was dangerous and may be intending to cause serious harm to his former partner, Samantha Stobbert. They were right. Welcome to Beyond Evil, where we bring you the most compelling true crime cases from all over the world. Some are disturbing, others are baffling, and some are simply pure evil. Before we begin, we would like to send our sincere condolences to the friends and families of all of the victims of Raoul Moat. Bertley, Northeast England. Samantha Stobert, age 22, was the former girlfriend of Raoul Moat. They had broken up some time back. Their relationship was abusive, and Samantha was justifiably terrified of Raul. But finally, she was just starting to move on with her life and had a new boyfriend. But there was a problem. Raul refused to see that the relationship was over. He still thought that Samantha was meant to be with him, unable to accept that she was no longer under his sphere of influence. She had recently started dating her new boyfriend, Chris Brown, age 29. Chris hadn't always lived in Northeast England. He was originally from Berkshire in Southern England, but had moved to the Northeast to start a new life. He was a successful karate instructor with his own business. Tragically, his blossoming romance with Samantha was not to last. Chris, being the martial arts expert he was, always maintained that he wasn't afraid of Raoul. But even the most highly trained people can sometimes be no match for mindless, remorseless violence. Saturday, the 3rd of July, 2010, Samantha and Chris had been out for a few drinks, but Samantha was not much in a party mood. She was all too aware that her ex-boyfriend Raul had just been released from prison two days earlier. On their way home, Chris and Sam walked through the housing estate where they both lived. Instead of going home, they decided to stop by a friend's house. Sam's mother and friends were all at the house having a party. The couple stayed until around 2.30 in the morning. Had they known the dangers lurking outside the property, they would have certainly thought twice about leaving. The couple said their goodbyes and left the property. As soon as they got out into the street, they were confronted by an enraged man large in size, brandishing a sawed-off shotgun. Moat wasn't there to intimidate or bluff anyone. He was serious. Even without engaging the couple, Moat opened fire and shot Chris in his upper body. The wounded Chris tried his best to make a run for it, but Moat mercilessly opened fire again. The details of what Moat did next is not for the faint-hearted. Defenseless, Chris was lying on the ground, bleeding uncontrollably. Raoul Mote walked over, stood over Chris, reloaded his shotgun. The helpless Chris could do nothing but watch as Mote pointed the shotgun at him for a third time and fired the fatal shot. Samantha, naturally shocked, upset, and terrified, ran back to the house. Moat used his next shotgun shell to fire through the front window of the property as Samantha ran inside. Samantha was critically injured by the shotgun pellets that flew through the window at about 400 meters per second. She was badly hit in the arm and abdomen. As an ambulance was being called, Moat calmly walked off and vanished into the pitch-black night. Samantha was rushed to the Queen Elizabeth Hospital, clinging onto life by a thread. The police attended the scene, doing their best to find any evidence amongst the devastation. But as far as suspects went, it wasn't difficult to discover who they were looking for. Detectives asked those inside the property and in the local community what had happened. Samantha herself was in no condition to talk to the police just yet, but people had seen Mote through the window of the property. Neighbors who also heard gunshots all described him. Unanimously, almost all the witnesses gave the same name, Raul Mote. The police were now convinced who they were looking for, but where was he? Mote simply disappeared into the night, leaving no trace of where he might have gone. Was he planning more violence, or was this simply a revenge attack for what he saw as a betrayal by his ex-girlfriend? Raoul Mote was born on the 17th of June, 1973. His childhood was far from perfect. His mother suffered with constant mental health issues and was really unable to look after him, meaning Mote spent most of his time living at his grandmother's. He always wanted to find his father, but no one would tell him who it was. Despite asking his mother on numerous occasions, for whatever reason, she refused to tell him. He did find happiness with his grandmother and came to worship the ground she walked on. She provided love, care, and stability, everything that his life lacked while in the care of his mother. But in 1986, Moat's mother remarried. In his teens by now, the relationship between Raul and his new stepfather was fractious to say the least. Whenever he would go to see or stay with his mother, his new stepfather made his feelings plain. There was no room for Raoul in their lives. He had no time for him at all. This led Raoul to become increasingly withdrawn from family life. At 24 years old, feeling unwanted, Moats severed all contact with his family and decided to strike out on his own. He did attempt to have a normal relationship with several women, but all of these came to nothing. That is, until 2004, when he met Samantha Stobbart. It is very common for people who have suffered neglect, or who had been missing something in their childhoods, to try to fill that void in their adult life. People who had never had a mother may seek an older woman, or a woman whose dad wasn’t around may seek to date older men. Moat was no different. He had never had a settled family life apart from the times he spent with his grandmother. As a result, what he desperately craved the most was a stable family life of his own, and he believed he could achieve that with Samantha. Their relationship did last for quite some period of time, about six years to be precise, but in 2010, the relationship came to an end after Moat was sent to prison for assaulting his nine-year-old relative. Prison was possibly the worst thing that could have happened to him. He was a paranoid man to begin with always wanting to know what Samantha was doing or who she was with. Samantha had given birth to Moat's daughter not too long before he went to prison. He also had custody of two other children from a previous relationship. After Samantha gave birth, he believed that despite the domestic violence and the bullying and intimidation, they could live the perfect family life together. But now they had broken up, and he was locked in a prison cell 23 hours a day with nothing to do but brood and think about what she might have been up to. He worked himself into such a paranoid-driven state of anger, he knew exactly what he was going to do when he got out of prison. On July the 1st, as soon as he was released, he began gathering what he would need to carry out his attack on Samantha and her new boyfriend, immediately acquiring a sawn-off shotgun and plenty of ammunition. Opening up the shells, as well as the pellets that were already in them, he added even more, smaller ball bearings and small pieces of metal, all designed to inflict maximum damage with devastating results. Samantha, in a desperate bid to try to make sure Raoul kept away from them in the future, told him that her new boyfriend was a police officer. Unwittingly, she had just made a huge mistake and could not have picked a worse profession to claim for her new boyfriend. Moat hated the police. He had a long-running history with the Northumbria police. He had never been in serious trouble, but they all knew him well, and they wanted to keep an eye on him. Whenever he went out driving or went to the shops or to get fuel, a police unit would be there watching him. Some of this, of course, could be put down to his own paranoia, but some of it wasn't. Friends of his said that whenever he wanted to do something as simple as put gas in his car, the police would pull up and start checking his vehicle. Whenever he would drive down a road, more often than not, the police would pull him over. Clearly, an attempt by police to let Moat know he was being watched, but he didn't see it that way. The resentment grew and grew, only fueling his paranoid state, and now that Samantha said that her new boyfriend was a police officer, Moat saw it as yet another way the police were trying to ruin his life, and he was not going to take it laying down. The police knew who they were looking for, and they knew he was armed, but they had no idea of the levels of hatred that Samantha's comments had stirred up inside Moat. On the 4th of July, less than 24 hours after the shooting of Chris and Samantha respectively, Moat made a call to the police, effectively declaring war on them. The police took Mote's threats very seriously. He had already demonstrated that he was willing to use firearms on previous targets, and now they themselves had become the hunted rather than the hunters. Mote had the upper hand. There was only one of him, and he could pop up anywhere without warning and potentially kill again. Unfortunately, they didn't have long to wait. That same evening, Police Constable David Rathband, age 42, was starting his late shift. All officers were fully aware of the threats that had been made against them, and they had been told to be extra vigilant in their duties. P.C. Rathband was sitting in his patrol car near the busy A1 road watching for the vehicle that Moat was thought to be driving. But Moat, unbeknownst to police, had changed vehicles earlier that day and was now driving a black Lexus. Officers had discovered the burned remains of his previous vehicle, but that information was not relayed to the officers out in the field that night. They were still looking for the original vehicle. Moat was basically undetectable. PC Rathband was looking for a vehicle that was never going to turn up. At 12.45 at night, Moat's Lexus went around the roundabout a couple of times before pulling up a little distance from the oblivious PC Rathband, who was alone in his car. Mote slowly crept up behind the car. Rathband had noticed someone moving and turned to see who it was. By the time he looked left, the large, intimidating silhouette of Raoul Mote was staring at him through the passenger side window. Mote blasted the helpless police officer twice in the face with a shotgun. Mote ran off into the night, leaving PC Rathband to fight for his life. But far from going into hiding, Raoul Mote would call the police once again. Mote made it clear he was not going to stop. The only way the police would stop him was by killing him. Now, he had crossed a line, especially for British criminals. Even the most notorious gangsters of the past and present knew then and know now that killing a police officer would be their downfall. It's an unwritten rule. The police do not take attacks or killings of their own very lightly. To stop Mote, they would need to bring all of their arms to bear against him. Killing someone for the police is always the last resort, but what alternative did they have? It seemed that Moat would continue killing until somebody stopped him, using lethal force if necessary. The police decided they needed to let Moat know that uh, he had their undivided attention and now was being taken very seriously. They decided to hold a press conference, as it was their only way of communicating with him. All the police could do was hope that Mote was either listening to the radio or watching the news and that he would see their press conference. He had, once again, vanished into the night, leaving another innocent victim fighting for his life. He was a needle in a haystack in Newcastle, a city with a population of over 800,000 people. The people of Newcastle were now living in fear as well. Mote could have literally turned up anywhere, killing somebody else and then fleeing the scene not to be found. Newcastle City Centre is a very popular night spot, famous around the UK for its strip clubs and bars. He wouldn't be short of potential targets. The police, for their part, were trying their very best, drafting in armed officers from Lancashire, Manchester, and Yorkshire. This was now the biggest manhunt in UK history. They constantly raided properties of people who knew Moat, following up on any leads or potential sightings that came in, but there was still no verified sign of him. Late in the afternoon on the 4th of July, police received reports that Moat had been seen and may have had hostages with him. Knowing that he was now driving a black Lexus with an unusually loud exhaust, police put out an appeal to the public to keep an eye out for the vehicle. With thousands of cars driving around Newcastle and its surrounding suburbs, this seemed like a long shot. But astonishingly, it didn't take long before a member of the public spotted the car in a rural part of the county. By the 6th of July 2010, Moat had been on the run for three days, and police finally had a breakthrough. The black Lexus that Moat had been driving was reported as being seen by several residents in a small rural village. Rothbury is just over 30 miles from Newcastle, in the middle of the countryside. It may have come as slight relief to the police that Moat was now lost in a maze of sparsely populated fields and woodlands but he also potentially had two hostages with him. And given his track record, he wasn't exactly big on the concept of the preservation of life. The lives of two people could be in serious danger. Rothbury is a sleepy little village in the heart of the countryside, a tight community everybody knows everybody else. To put it bluntly, nothing exciting ever happens there. But that was about to change. On the morning of the 6th of July, police vehicles were seen speeding through the center of the village. Armed police were seen patrolling the streets, fields, and nearby wooded areas. Over 500 armed officers in total were now looking for Raoul Mote, and the two-mile exclusion zone was set up around the perimeter of the village. This was because police were certain that when they found him, he would certainly try to shoot his way out. Assuming he did not have a new vehicle, he wouldn't have gotten very far. But this case was about to take a very strange twist. Police had been suspicious about the alleged hostages. They hadn't decided whether they were actually hostages or accomplices complicit in Mote's killing spree. The police were right to be suspicious. Two men had delivered notes to their families. These men were Carl Ness and Quorum Awan. The letters stated that they were both okay and they were in the care of their friend, Raoul Mote, but not to pass the messages on to the police for fear that they would be shot. These two men, though, didn't have the common sense to disappear into the countryside like Moat. Instead, they made their way along a country road wearing bright clothing. A police helicopter hovering over the area detected the two men walking down the road. An undercover police car drove past to identify them. Once they knew it was them, the armed police swarmed the men, threw flashbang grenades to stun them, and apprehended both without injury. Ness and Awan weren't the, uh, well, sharpest tools in the box, but they knew when they were beaten, and the full extent of their involvement in Moat's activities became clear. Ness had met Moat from working as a doorman in Newcastle alongside him. During his time in prison, Ness would visit Moat regularly, something that seemed to have slipped under the radar of the authorities in their hunt for Moat. Ness and Moat were longtime friends. Awan was more of a newcomer, but both men had helped Moat in one way or another, including driving him to Samantha Stobert's home the night he killed Chris and shot her. Ness had also been driving the night that Moat had shot P.C. Rathband in his patrol car. Both men were also captured on CCTV together, buying groceries and taking it back to Moat at different properties. They had been both harboring the fugitive and helping him to evade capture, thus enabling him to continue with his vendetta. On Wednesday, the 7th of July, 2010, Moat was still on the run, managing to evade police detection in the dense Northumbrian countryside. Slowly but surely, though, the net was tightening, and Moat was running out of places to hide. The police discovered a makeshift campsite that had been recently used, but Moat, for the moment at least, was still managing to stay one step ahead of the pursuing officers. Before fleeing the campsite, he had left a dictaphone behind and recorded a message for them. The message said that he was very unhappy about his portrayal in the media, and for every lie told by the press, he would kill an innocent member of the public in revenge. Police, for the moment, had no option but to appease Moat. They issued a gagging order or a D notice to the media, asking them not to publish anything about Moat that could possibly upset or agitate him any further. After all, lives depended on it, especially with Moat holding most of the cards. It was revealed by an ex-girlfriend of his that he knew the area very well. They holidayed there frequently, fishing and camping in the woods. This explained why he had been so good at evading police, and despite apparently having no contact with the outside world, he was still able to survive and keep moving. The 8th of July, 2010, Moat was still on the run. The people of Rothbury, despite the two-mile exclusion zone and hundreds of armed officers, did not feel safe. Moat had evaded everyone so far. What's to say he couldn't turn up in the middle of the village if he wanted to? People even started avoiding drain covers around the village in fear that Moat might be hiding in the large storm sewers that ran under the village. Nobody was taking any chances. Whether it was paranoia or not, we can't be sure, but the villagers kept reporting that they saw Moat around the village, mainly at night. One woman even said that he had slept in her bed and claimed that his head had left an imprint on her pillow. More believable sightings, however, occurred around the people's gardens. Homegrown vegetables started going missing. Was Moat now scavenging for any food he could find? He couldn't live off of nothing in the woodlands forever. July the 9th, 2010, at 7.25 in the evening, a member of the public called the police to say a man answering the description of Moat had been seen on the riverbank next to the center of the village. This time, the sighting was genuine. Armed police rushed to the scene, and there was Moat standing near the riverbank on a patch of grass. Police shouted at him to drop his weapon, but Moat did not comply. Instead, he raised his weapon and pointed it at... Not the police, but his own head. Now, it was a standoff. If at all possible, police wanted Moat to surrender, but if necessary, they were more than willing to shoot him to prevent further loss of life. The public and the press were all shepherded away from the area while the police tried to negotiate his surrender. Every news channel in the UK and many from all over the world now had 24-hour rolling coverage of the scene and the standoff. It was now the biggest story in the world. The police had anticipated this sort of scenario might develop. As a result, negotiators had been working on ways to try and open a dialogue with him for a while. Body language experts tried desperately to predict what he was thinking and how he might act. Meanwhile, armed police laid in wait for any false move with their rifles trained on moat. The negotiators began to make some progress. Mote opened up to them about his previous relationships that had all gone wrong. But at the same time, every suggestion that killing himself wasn't the only way out of the whole situation was only met with anger and requests that they made of him also aggravated the situation. They tried for six hours to get Mote to come quietly, but as the conversations continued, Mote's state of mind was only getting worse. From a distance, loud voices were heard. The conversations now became more like an argument. The police negotiators were quickly losing control of the situation. Senior officers on site now came to the conclusion that it was clear Moat did not want to be taken alive. He was determined to die on that riverbank. In a last-ditch attempt to take him alive, they fired two long-range tasers at Moat in a bid to incapacitate him. Unfortunately for them, Mote quickly pulled the trigger on his sawed-off shotgun, the same one he had used to cause so much harm and misery to others, critically injuring himself. He was taken away in an ambulance, barely alive, but by the time they arrived at the hospital, Mote was pronounced dead. Mote's rampage had finally come to an end, and so had his life. The operation, the biggest ever seen in the UK, had cost Northumbria police over a million pounds. Naturally, his death was recorded as a suicide. Raoul Mote's troubled childhood is not an excuse for the crimes he committed or the way he bullied and manipulated other people throughout his life. Many people have troubled starts in their life, but they overcome that adversity and grow from it. Raoul Mote was too weak to grow up and stop blaming everyone else for his failures. There can be little doubt, though, that his past did play a part in his behavior as he reached adulthood. A combination of personality traits including paranoia, jealousy, and aggression were always going to send him down a bad road without help. For their part in these heinous crimes, Ness and Awan both received lengthy prison terms. Awan was ordered to serve a minimum of 20 years behind bars. Ness was sentenced to a minimum of 40 years. Ness later appealed, arguing that his sentence was excessive, but it was later rejected by the Court of Appeals judges. Without the assistance of Ness and Awan, it is unlikely that Mote would have been able to stay on the run as long as he did. This explains the long prison sentences they both received. It could be argued that they played as big a part in Mote's crimes as Mote himself, and as such were equally as responsible. We must not overlook the failings of the authorities in this case either. The prison service warned the police that Mote was dangerous and intended to cause harm to his ex-girlfriend. The message was sent on Friday, but was not picked up until Monday, when it was already too late. The police also failed PC David Rathband. He was out on patrol as usual, but due to intelligence about Moat driving different vehicles not being passed on, Rathband was left vulnerable, working off of incorrect information, a sitting duck in his vehicle, and easy prey for Moat to target. Thankfully, Samantha Staubert managed to make a full recovery from her injuries. Though surely still scarred by her ordeal and losing her soulmate, Chris Brown, she has rebuilt her life and works as a caregiver. She is now 34 years old and has two daughters. Samantha will not talk to the media, but a neighbor said she works long hours. When she isn't working, she's out with her daughters. She's a lovely woman. PC David Rathband had just started a shift doing the job he loved. After being shot in the face twice by moat, he was left permanently blind, but did survive his horrific injuries. After Moat fled the scene, despite being severely wounded, he managed to radio the sighting of Moat and request backup, managing to give his colleagues details about Moat's appearance and the vehicle he was using. It took months of treatment and therapy, but P.C. Rathband battled on to overcome his injuries even setting up his own charity to help out other emergency service personnel who had been injured in the line of duty. In June of 2011, he released his autobiography, titled Tango 190, His Call Sign. But David's life began to spiral out of control when Moat's accomplices were jailed in 2011, bringing everything back to him. David and his wife of 20 years, Kath, separated after she discovered that he had been having an affair. Tragically, although he made a good physical recovery apart from the loss of his sight, mentally, David couldn't cope. PC David Rathband committed suicide on the 19th of February, 2012, in his home in Blythe. Chris Brown was just 29 years old. His crimes? Finding the love of his life and giving her everything she wanted from a boyfriend. Despite maintaining that he was not fearful of Raoul Mote, He could not have predicted the lengths that his assailant would go to in his quest for revenge. Everyone spoke highly of him, well-liked, polite, and all around a good person to be with. But tragically, his life was cut short by the actions of Raoul Mote. As always, here at Beyond Evil, our first thoughts are for the victims of the crimes we cover. Chris Brown and David Rathband both lost their lives due to the actions of Raul Mote, two good men who did nothing to hurt anyone else. One of them paid the ultimate price for having a girlfriend, and the other was just doing his job as he always had. Samantha Stobbert, although still alive, is now living a normal life, free from Mote, but the hole left in her heart by the loss of Chris Brown, her love, must be rather large. We hope that Samantha will continue to be happy with her children and live a long life, but we also hope that Chris Brown and David Rathband are now at peace. If you found this story compelling, don't forget to like the video, comment down below your take on it, and please subscribe to the channel. Less than half the folks who watch our videos are subscribers. It's free and easy, and it makes it possible for us to continue to bring you great true crime content. Also, be sure to hit the notification bell in order to stay up to date each time we reveal a new shocking case. Until next time, stay safe and keep your eyes peeled. You never know what's lurking in the shadows.